when I was a kid, my parents would take us every Tuesday evening to the Virginia Nursing Home in Waukesha, Wisconsin, my hometown. And we would just show up and uh, my dad, we'd walk down the halls and my dad would kind of poke his head in one of the doors and ask one of the residents there, would you like a visitor t today? Would you like some visitors today? And then my brother and I would sit down on the floor and we would uh, color, play Legos, while my parents would ask, initially, random strangers about their lives and their losses, ask them about their wishes, hopes, and dreams. And over time, we got to know some of the different residents there. So I remember Vivian. She was a woman, uh, first door right on the left as we walked in, and she always had something in her hand. She was always crocheting or knitting or needlepoint, um, Vivian. And then I remember upstairs there was a woman, Esther, and her TV was always on. I remember about her that she had lost both her legs, and she was basically you know, bound to the bed um, without, without help. And um, what I remember uh, about over time was that we would get to know different residents with this Tuesday night visiting the nursing home. And uh, sometimes our lives would just get busy, you know, and we'd miss a few weeks or more. And then we would show up one Tuesday, and someone wasn't there. And either the room was empty, or um, sometimes it was someone else had already moved in to that space, and it was a new person and new belongings. And that, those are my earliest memories of the process of aging. Those are my earliest memories of death and dying and being mortal. And today we're starting this new series called Being Mortal. And we grabbed that title from a book that I read last year called Being Mortal. And it's a thought-provoking book uh, by a doctor about his observations about death and dying. I'm sure many of you have read it. And in the book, he talks about how as a doctor, he felt so ill-equipped as a medical professional to face end-of-life conversations. He opens the book by saying this, I learned about a lot of things in medical school, but mortality wasn't one of them. The way we saw it and the way our professors saw it, the purpose of medical schooling was to teach how to save lives, not how to tend to their demise. And when I read those words in the opening pages of that book, I just thought, communities of faith, like right here, this is an important place for us to be having conversations about aging and death and dying and what it means to be mortal. How important those things are to talk about here. And so uh, if you, you could look at it like this. In that book, mortality is looked at kind of through a medical lens. Um, but in this series, I'm hoping we will ask spiritual questions related to uh, being mortal. So to kick off the series today, we're going to look at three stories from the lives of people, uh, Ben Franklin, Lazarus, and who we're going to call Courageous Thomas. So likely you have heard that phrase that says, there are only two things that are certain in life. What are they? Death 
and taxes. And we kind of throw that out there like, you know, everything is always changing. The only two things you can count on, death and taxes. But we rarely pause and actually think about what we're saying when we throw that around so flippantly. Like, we're all going to die. And uh, rarely do we stop and really reflect on what that means. In the book, Death, Summer's Coat, what the history of death and dying teaches us about life and living, Brandy Shillage says this, we die. We know this in principle, and yet, in the Western world, we don't live with the idea of death. We refrain from thinking about it. We avoid reflecting on it. And death is something most, pe- most of us simply don't want to talk about. Which is why we're kicking off this series on Super Bowl Sunday when... <laughs> Not everyone is here anyway. <laughs> but if you're a follower of Christ, it's important to reflect on being mortal. The scriptures actually have a lot to say about death and life. I mean, the greatest moment of the story, the Christian story, involves a death. It's the mortal moment of the immortal Son of God. And so how do followers of Christ live in light of death in a culture that kind of wants to avoid the conversation at all costs? And why do we want to avoid the conversation? One of the reasons we don't talk about death is because the realities of death are largely hidden from us today, most of us. I mean, the final phases of life, they're just less familiar to most people today. As recently as 1945, most people died in their homes. It's not that long ago. But as recently, or as uh, basically by the 1980s, only 17% of people died in their homes. Uh, So this is just evidence that, you know, aging and death, it shifted from something that we all see and experience in homes to hospitals and nursing homes and hospice staff. So thinking about and talking about death has actually been called the most important and costly conversation America isn't having. We Americans especially hate this topic, and author Lawrence Samuel, who wrote a book called Death American Style, has a theory on why we hate this topic of death so much. He says this, more than any single factor, it is that death and dying run counter to virtually all of the nation's defining values. Youth, beauty, progress, achievement, winning, optimism, independence, and persistence. That accounts for our dying badly. I don't want us to die badly. As followers of Christ, it's important for us to have conversations about things that God deems valuable, and death is one of them. Uh, The Bible frequently talks about death, even though our culture avoids the topic. Usually in our culture, the only time we talk about mortality is when we're like absolutely faced with it, with someone we love at the end or with ourselves. If there's an urgent concern, then we face it. Um, I mean, think about this. This is kind of interesting. In, uh, in 2017, only 42% of Americans had a will. Now, people over the age of 72 
were like almost 80% likely to have a will, while millennials were like 80% likely not to have a will. So it does increase as we age, which makes sense. I think we only got a will like a year or so ago. The elderly are more likely to have it. But the reality is, and we all know this, we don't know when we're going to die. We don't know when the day of our death will come, but we, we just don't like thinking about that. We don't like thinking about that fact. So just to kick off the spirit, the spirit of the series, would you read this sentence out loud with me? We're all going to die. Happy Sunday, everybody. <laughs> the truth of that statement could not be more biblical. It could not be more consistent with the teaching of Scripture. I mean, even in the very beginning of the Bible, you're not very far in at all to the Bible when you're reading that God created humanity, placed them in this perfect garden. They would have lived there forever, except God's one command to them. Second chapter of the Bible, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And of course, Adam and Eve turned from God's command, ate of the tree, and then God responded by saying this, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So they were dependent on God for life, and then they rejected him, and they forfeited life along with him. And that's why Ben Franklin's right. There are two things that are certain in life, and one of them is death. In the Gospels, we read about a man named Lazarus. And actually, this entire series, we are just going to look at one chapter in the Gospel of John. It's, it's John 11. And there's kind of three acts in this story of the resurrection, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And today we're going to look at the first act. And the next Sunday, our friend Marcus Doe, he's written a book called uh, Catching Rice Birds. He's a Liberian refugee who has been to seminary and is now a pastor and who we know from way back, is actually going to come and share. He lost both of his parents um, in Liberia, came here when he was a, a pre-teenager. Um, don't miss next week. It's going to be great to have Marcus here. But we'll take a pause next week and hear from Marcus, um, who recently did a TED Talk, has a book, really interesting guy. And then the last two weeks of this series, we will look at kind of Act 2 and Act 3 of John's Chapter 11, the story about a man named Lazarus. So today, Act 1, this is what the scriptures say. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord, wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days, and then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back? Jesus answered, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. 
So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. This is the word of the Lord. So this first scene in the story, full of paradoxes. I mean, consider this. Jesus loves Lazarus, yet he doesn't seem to respond to the report of his illness. He says Lazarus's illness won't lead to death, and then he says he's fallen asleep, and then he plainly reports his death. The death of a loved one ought to bring us full of sorrow. It would fill a person with sorrow. And yet Jesus says, he's glad that I was not there. Full of paradoxes. And all of these paradoxes do not completely end in this first act. They continue. They roll on in the story. And maybe part of the reason is because there are just so many paradoxical feelings and experiences in death. We often can experience different things at the same time. And maybe not only that, but maybe these paradoxes are because, in part, point, like they're pointing to what this whole thing is really about. We're so focused on Lazarus and why is Jesus doing what he's doing, and Jesus keeps saying, this is for the glory of God, this is for the glory of God. It's like the entire point of the episode is the glory of God revealed in Christ. And Jesus wants his disciples to see that. He wants them to know that. It's like one of the realities of death that we know in our heads, but we just, we just for, we tend to forget, is that we're not taking anything with us. I mean, all the way back in ancient times, you think about like the Vikings and the Egyptians who would bury great people with their possessions. You'd have Vikings with big, huge ships buried with those ships. And where are those ships now? Some of them are in museums. They couldn't take them with them, and people have dug them up and placed them in museums. Or, you know, the pyramids, same kind of thing. Famous people buried with treasure. Where are those treasures now? Either grave robbers went and took them, or they're often dug up and placed in museums, even still today. We know this in our heads that we can't take anything with us, but we so often in day in, day out of life, we forget this. Like when you die, no matter how hard you might try, you have no power to influence the world anymore. And your possessions, your glory, even your reputation remains here for future generations to handle without any input from you. You can't take anything with you, but you can leave God's glory greater. And that's what we see in this story with Lazarus. Lazarus is kind of a passive character in the story in a way. But he loved Christ and Christ loved him. Jesus says that his death is for the glory of God. Like being with Jesus did not give Lazarus superpowers. He died like everybody else. He really didn't impress anybody in his death. He just got sick and died. 
But this terrible reality of death in the presence of Jesus became, Jesus said, an opportunity for the glory of God. And Jesus is wanting his disciples to see that. This death, it seems so meaningless on the surface. It's like it's been given deeper meaning. It's been given deeper purpose. And the purpose is an eternal purpose. It's really the reputation of God, the glory of God. So Lazarus, he couldn't take anything with him, but he could, even in his death, make God's glory greater. And that's the first thing we see in this story. We also see the climax of this first scene is Jesus reports the death death of Lazarus, and then he says this, for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. What is that all about? It's like there's this implication. If Jesus had been present, Lazarus would not have died. And it makes us mad. It's like, why weren't you there? Like, why didn't you go right away? And that shock, sometimes that anger, delays our seeing the point that Jesus is making, that he is going to make death itself into his servant for God's glory. It's like Jesus wants the disciples to see that. Jesus and death went to battle, and Jesus won. But there are kind of two different ways that you can win. Two different ways, two different types of winning. One way of winning is to simply kill your enemy, remove him forever, and then your victory often is soon forgotten, which is why, you know, in battles people will, you know, build monuments and write things down in history books. I don't want you to forget, like, I got that enemy and they are gone because we soon forget these things. The second way, though, that you can defeat an enemy is to make him your servant, And so you think in the ancient world there were like defeated kings who would be brought in and made the servant of the conquering king. Or defeated kings who would be allowed to stay in their palace but would have to give tribute to the conquering king. Really, this is the way of Jesus with death. He defeated it but didn't remove it. We still die just as he died. But Christ became death's death's master. So what he did was he made death a doorway to eternal life. He made death his servant. He didn't remove it. It's still here, but it's become a doorway to eternal life. And sometimes, you know, you talk with people about being with their loved ones at the end of life. And there's like these echoes. You hear stories. I actually had a book here. I, for, I read it in the first service. Now I have lost it. Um, <laughs> but it's a book about letting go by a woman who has spent a lot of time with people at the end. And she tells different stories. And one of the stories uh, is basically about sitting Um, she's sitting with her father at the end, giving her mother a much-needed break, staying with him through the night, and all of a sudden he just sits up, and he starts applauding. And he had just been non-responsive for days up to this. 
And within two weeks of that, he died. And she writes about kind of, you know, these, these different experiences at the end. Many, I have heard from you, many of you have, have stories like that yourself. Where it's like the, it's like the veil is kind of, it's like it's kind of pulled back, you know. And, and you're witnessing that someone is witnessing that doorway. Like the other side. Everything that Jesus is saying about the death of Lazarus is a pointer to the greater glories that are revealed in himself. It's like Jesus is the greater Lazarus. Lazarus will be raised, but Jesus is the one who willingly lays down his life to make this doorway. Death is now going to be a doorway. And that is why Jesus could say to the man next to him on the cross, today I will see you in paradise. It's why Paul could say stuff like, you know, for me to live as Christ, to die, that's gain. Because on the other side is life without sin. And death is just a doorway to that. It's why you read things in the Bible where, like, you know, the, the early followers of Jesus would be like, where, oh, death is your victory? Where, oh, death is your sting? It's, it's almost like it's a box. You know, like Jesus went into a boxing ring with death, and it's like, death, where's your left hook? Where's your final punch? Like, you can't stay. Like Jesus won, and now death is his servant, and death becomes this doorway to life. And everything Jesus is saying here about the death of Lazarus is this pointer to greater, you know, greater glories revealed in his own crucifixion. And that is why it's so important to Jesus in this story that the disciples understand that what they're seeing in the death and resurrection of this friend is in fact the glory of God. What Jesus wanted his disciples and us to know before he died was that he had the power to strong-arm death. He had the power to make it his servant, to use it for good and for the glory of God. Francis Schaeffer once said this, let us notice that this is the very center of the Christian message. It's not Christ's life nor his miracles, but his death. Lastly, can we talk about Thomas in this story? Did you notice Thomas shows up in this section of Scripture? He is often missed in this passage, but when we think of the disciple named Thomas, we usually have a name for him, right? What is it? Doubting Thomas because of the post-resurrection incident with Christ where he's like, I got to see the nail marks. I got to touch his hands. But we actually see Thomas right here as courageous Thomas. This is what we read. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. What courage. When Jesus is saying he's going to go into the jaws of his enemies in Jerusalem, it's Thomas who speaks up and says, let us go that we may die with him. Like Christ has gone where we cannot go into battle with death to defeat it. And he's made death his servant. But what Thomas is sort of like probably unknowingly speaking to is something then the Bible speaks to over and over and over again, which is this idea that we have to walk into death with Jesus in order to live with him. It's the way of Jesus. What's, what do we celebrate each week at the table? That Christ himself was taken, blessed, broken, and given for the sake of the world. What's the way of Jesus for us? It's that Eucharist way. It's to be taken 
and blessed and broken and given for the sake of the world. That we have to walk into death with Jesus in order to live with him. Even Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus told his followers, don't worry though, because the Father, the Spirit, will be present with you. So it's like you read the Bible and it's like the early followers of Christ had this, um, they had like a sober confidence facing death. I would not call that dying badly. There was a sober confidence in the face of death that first, Jesus was with them as they faced death. That Jesus was with them in their death and that he lay on the other side of death as well. Many of you know, you know Vincent van Gogh, famous Dutch painter. He uh, had a father who was a Protestant preacher, and he left his childhood faith, became very disillusioned, became very destructive, became very despondent, very depressed, different points in his life. Later in his life, he began to open up again, to embrace God's love again. His life kind of took on a new hope. Um, and that hope was actually given a color in his artwork. In Scott McKnight's book, Jesus Creed, he talks about how the best kept secret in Van Gogh's life is that the hope he was discovering is seen in the gradual increase of the color, the presence of the color yellow in his paintings. Yellow evoked for him the hope and the warmth of God's love. So in one of his depressive periods, he did the famous The Starry Night. And in that painting, you find a yellow sun and yellow swirling stars. Because at that time, Van Gogh thought truth was present only in nature. And you notice that the church is it's almost the only part of the painting that is not touched by any yellow. And later in his life, when God's grace and love had found him again, Van Gogh painted a work he called The Raising of Lazarus. It is blindingly filled with yellow. And it is a painting based on the story we're exploring in this series, The Raising of Lazarus. Not only is there a lot of yellow, but Van Gogh put his own face on Lazarus to express his own hope in the resurrection, to symbolize his own death with Christ and rising. Yellow here, it's like it tells the whole story. Because of one death, life can begin all over again. Because of the mortality of the immortal sun, we too can rise. We can actually begin a relationship now that goes on into eternity with Christ. It begins now. 
and then it never ends. And death, that just becomes a door to that relationship where no sin, where no shame, where no sadness exists. So as we consider together being mortal this month, may it lead you and I to paint our own lives with more yellow, with more hope of the resurrection to come. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the truth that we center our lives on, that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ has come again. I pray throughout these next few weeks together in this series that you might teach us what it looks like to look at death so that we might fully embrace life, beginning with you now and lasting into eternity. We pray all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.